Welcome back to the program. Look at any campaign, from student body president to president of the United States, and we see some key ingredients. The clarity and strength of the message, the quality of the political organization, the discipline of the candidate, the get-out-the-vote effort, and the resonance of the broader issues. As President Obama entered his re-election campaign a full two years before the 2012 election, by any objective standard, these things were in flux, and not always for the better. To paraphrase the opposition, the hope and change thing wasn't going well. And yet Obama would become the first president to be elected and then re-elected with over 50% of the vote since Ike. What did they do right and wrong to accomplish this? That's the subject of MSNBC's Richard Wolff's new book, The Message. Richard Wolff is executive editor at MSNBC.com and former senior White House correspondent for Newsweek. His book about the first Obama campaign, Renegade, was a New York Times bestseller, and it is my pleasure to welcome Richard Wolf back to this program to talk about his newest book, The Message, The Reselling of President Obama. Richard Wolf, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Delight to have you here. At what point did the campaign realize, or did the higher-ups in the campaign realize, that this wasn't going to be, as we sometimes see in the military, a situation where you fight the next war with the things you learned in the last one, that, that it had to be a whole new right. paradigm? right from the beginning. You know, what they did was they, at the start of the campaign, did what they call a, a benchmark polling, where they went and did this sort of giant scale polling of the country, of likely voters, of swing voters, and then focus grouped lots of people. And what they found was really bleak and shocking. This was the period right after the last debt ceiling crisis. Everyone in Washington looked bad. The president had taken a big hit. The, the credit rating of the United States had been downgraded, and it was a bleak period. They looked at this, and remember, this benchmark isn't just sort of one point in time. It's how they measured the entire strategy going forward. They saw that voters were ready for change. They'd lost confidence in the president. It wasn't just that they were dissatisfied. They were very unhappy. And so that really did shape things moving forward, not just because they realized the scale of the challenge. It was because it, it, it shaped how they could talk about the economy. And, and that was a, a lively, vigorous, protracted debate among the uh, Obama inner circle for many, many months, really throughout the campaign. One of the things that made this even more difficult at that particular moment in time, as you write about it, is the fact that, that Obama himself w was a bit depressed about the whole situation, yeah. and those working for him were suffering from kind of burnout from the first yeah. two years. It's true. Uh, they found it a very tough time. He found it a very tough time. The debt ceiling uh, debate was a mess and had sapped his energy and authority. And, you know, he's not someone who goes into purple rages. This was a long, slow burn for them all. He came out the other side of it really in a fighting mood, and that really did shift things through the fall um, when he starts making a job speech and he starts challenging Republicans in Congress to pass the bill, which was a jobs bill. But at that moment, and again, this was the very start of the campaign as they're looking at the whole landscape, a very dark mood. And, and, and seeing that arc, I think, is really extraordinary because, uh, you know, looking back, 
you say, well, of course, it was a big victory and it was all inevitable. Not at all. When they started out, they did not think this was inevitable. They felt that this was, they were in real jeopardy. It was also, in many ways, their strength which was being questioned. The first campaign had been so effective in communicating its message, and here communication was the weakest part of the re-election campaign. Yeah, you know, a fundamental question, just coming out of this economic polling, that they faced right from the beginning. People had forgotten there was an economic crisis. They didn't really know or want to hear what the president had done about it because they didn't think a whole lot had changed. And so, you know, you had a, a, an inner core that said, well, we really want to say it's morning in America again because, you know, that worked for Ronald Reagan. But the economy isn't there. The president can't take credit for everything because people think it's just all about him. So talking about what they call the accomplishments was an incredibly uh, fine needle to thread. Um, they did it. The campaign ads were really strong and striking. But... The communications piece of it was fraught from the beginning. It was difficult to execute, and it wasn't made any easier by the egos involved. I want to talk about the egos because one of the things that becomes so powerfully clear, and, and I suppose it is a telling story for Washington in general, that an administration that came to Washington to change things, in fact, they're the ones that wound up being changed, that the impact of the time they spent there, the impact of the power that they suddenly had, had really had profound influences on these people. Yeah, that was a really surprising thing for me, I've got to be honest. I you know, covered the Obama campaign in 08 from, from start to finish, from announcement to election night in 08. And this time around, coming back again, you know there are going to be contrasts, but I was not expecting to find a story of, of how little sort of team spirit there was in Chicago and the campaign headquarters. And it's become a sort of cliche, a sort of lazy piece of conventional wisdom that people say, if they're on the right or the left and they don't much like the president, they say, oh, he's just like Bush. That actually isn't really true at all, not on the policy, not on the style, not on the character. What he is like and what he has become like, at least in terms of the inner circle, the dynamic of his campaign, is like the Hillary campaign in, in 2008. A lot of infighting, a lot of baggage, a lot of past disputes that people took into the campaign. And those internal politics were a major obstacle. So they had a major obstacle to overcome in terms of the economy. They also had a major obstacle to overcome because they just didn't get along. It's also the difference between being an incumbent versus being an insurgent, and, and even if you use the Hillary analogy, certainly being a front runner, that it's when you have nothing to lose, it's a very different landscape than when you have everything to lose. It is a very different landscape. Um, you know, there's a lot on the line as opposed to thinking, well, nobody expected us to win, and so if we do, it's historic and amazing. And I think that does gel the team together in a common purpose. Um, I also think that coming out of the White House, as many of them had done, all the struggles around power and proximity to power were being played out in the campaign. So you had you had some of the sort of baggage of Washington that was carried all the way to Chicago. You also had people in the White House who were still controlling things rather than leaving Chicago to be really in control of its own fate. All of those things played out in really unexpected ways for me and, and ways that they, they really were very disciplined in, in making sure they didn't leak 
one of the problems they faced was when things started to leak, the president himself got extremely upset and angry. Um, so they kept a, a very tight lid on, on what was a very dysfunctional thing. And, and I just want to say again, you know, it, it is extraordinary that they managed to win re-election in this terrible economy that they faced with voters ready for change. And it's also extraordinary that they did so when there was such uh, uh, dogged and determined infighting as well. Part of that infighting, as you talk about, was the conflict that went on between Washington and Chicago, that while they were in many interchangeable parts, perhaps David Axelrod and David Plouffe being the, the penultimate examples, that the conflicts and the, the interseen warfare between Washington and Chicago was at the heart of, in many cases, the failure to, for, to achieve clarity of message. That's right. Um, uh, David Plouffe, who was a campaign manager in 2008, really maintained the same role in 2012, but he didn't have that title. He had someone else in there as campaign manager in Chicago, and that led to a huge amount of problems. Um, was the campaign manager in Chicago really pulling the strings? Was he really calling the shots? What did David Plouffe really want? What did the president really want? There was a, a sort of gray and fuzzy area there, and you know, who, who, the question of who really has power and control wasn't resolved. Uh, and that led to the rivalries and suspicions, some of them real, some of them imagined, just really snowballing. And, and uh, you know, we've seen it a lot with this president. Sometimes things that many people agree with, the majority of voters agree with, end up being very protracted and painful. And, um, and, and much harder to accomplish than they need to be. And in, in a sense, the Obama campaign of 2012 was like that. Uh, they, they, they had a path, they had a plan, and it became much more complicated because of these management questions, because of these personal rivalries. How much of it started at the top? How much starts with the president and his more deliberative and, and different approach to some of these issues and, and the way they would get decided? I think that's some of it. I think also his absence was part of it. And people inside the campaign told me, you know, in 2008, they really had him to themselves. He was there. He was frequently in campaign headquarters. He could assert his own leadership. You can't do that when you're the president of the United States. You've got to deal with foreign policy crises, continued economic challenges. And there are constant distractions. And the distractions for someone who likes the deliberative approach to policy. So when he's preparing for his debates and that first debate that went so badly, he wants to get into the weeds of the policy. He likes the policy. The whole campaigning piece of it is a wrenching difference. It's a, it's a different mode of politics that he doesn't really respect and, and sees as being trivial. So the campaign, parts of the campaign he loved to do. He loved to get out there, be with the crowds. Didn't, though, want to have anything to do with what they all, they knew that Chicago was dysfunctional and things weren't working right. And he really didn't want to intervene. It was just, uh, it was too much for him in, in the sense that he was happy to have policy debates. But as one of his, uh, his senior advisors told me, when it came to the political differences, the communications differences, he was nowhere to be seen and couldn't deal with it. To what extent was the message they developed as a result of the initial polling and, and all of their internal debates, to what extent was that message universal 
or was it specifically designed for a campaign against Mitt Romney? Well, what they did was they really blew it out in terms of saying, we're not really running against Mitt Romney. We're running against uh, not even just the Republicans. We're running an entire economy that isn't working. So what you saw was them talking about the structural problems in the economy, an economy that didn't work for the middle class, an economy that had been like that for many decades. Uh, And so they redefined their opponent as being much bigger than Mitt Romney. It happened that Mitt Romney for them was the perfect avatar, the perfect exemplar of, of this economy. So they did tie the two things together, but their... Their messaging had to go bigger because if it was just a choice between them and Mitt Romney, it wouldn't nearly have been enough. It wasn't big enough, wasn't big enough of a difference, and didn't really speak to where voters were because they were prepared to change the character uh, in the White House um, unless this became a bigger question of values and priorities. They couldn't really motivate people to, to realize what the stakes were. One of the things they had going for them, though, throughout is there was a sense that even though there was dissatisfaction with the direction and policy, people continued to seem to like Obama. Exactly. The personal qualities were very, very strong for him, and they remain strong, and that's been consistent throughout. People uh, don't. People actually tend to like his policies. They don't like his policies when you put the Obama name next to them, and yet they still like him as an individual. There are really conflicted feelings about this president and have been for many, many years. And I think part of that is because he's such a new character and, and people still find him disconcerting in one way or another. So uh, the personal qualities were very strong. It made it difficult for the other side to say somehow he's an evil, radical socialist. The message that really worried Chicago was, you could see it in some ads from the groups that supported Romney, were, were ones about disappointment. That's what they were hearing in the focus groups. We like him. We really wanted him to be successful, but he's really disappointed us, and maybe we should have a change. That's what the focus groups were saying over and over again. You saw it in some of the Republican ads, but not all of them. And, and that, if they had had that consistency, I think the Romney campaign would have been much more successful. How much of that did they attribute to the fact that they overpromised or oversold in the first campaign? I think they recognized that uh, it was very hard to control people's hopes. It, you can't say, let's get hopeful for change, and, but don't get too hopeful. Um, so, you know, they, they obviously didn't expect the country to react the way they did in 2007-8. They knew they had a special candidate. They knew that there could be real excitement for change, but it, it went way beyond their wildest expectations. And so they knew at the time that expectations were running out of control. They knew also at the time that the depth of the economic crisis of that collapse at the end of 2008 was so deep that they were going to be in in, in huge trouble themselves politically at the next election and almost certainly for the re-election. So they could see that, but that's that that's not the same as knowing what to do about it. And and that's where really the genius of the campaign was to broaden the discussion about bigger structural problems in the economy, about middle-class fairness, what they call the fair shot and the fair shake, and, and not really even to talk about Mitt Romney. As I say in the book, Mitt Romney, you know, they had 99 problems, but Mitt Romney wasn't one of them. Uh, he, he was only at the first debate did he really loom large as, as a real threat to them. One of the ironies in all of this is that while they went for that broader theme that you're talking about with respect to the change, the structural changes in the economy, 
their marketing and their ad campaign was extremely narrow and extremely targeted and disciplined in many respects. Yeah, you know, they were real uh, uh, innovations that I think many people don't know about because you wouldn't be able to see the whole universe of the kinds of ads they put out. So they would start out with a big theme about, you know, how the economy is getting better and, and, and the president had helped and do his part by helping the auto industry survive. But then they'd spool off all of these ads with the related themes that were much more focused on, say, a state like Ohio with a particular relationship to the auto industry. So you'd see a, a much more complicated ad strategy than maybe you could see just at the national level. And on top of that, they were extremely sophisticated in saying, how can we make our dollars go further with these ads? Ads are incredibly expensive to buy across all of these battleground states. They really came up with the first uh, overview of, of value for money. Where in the cable universe, in obscure corners of the cable universe, could they find infrequent voters, people who weren't watching the news channels or the nightly news, and yet could be convinced to come out to vote. And they found, you know, hours of TV on on TV land, reruns from, you know, black and white uh, sitcoms that were airing in the middle of the night where they found real value for money. And that's how they made their dollars go further. So even though they were outspent, their ads actually reached their target audience much more successfully than than the Romney campaign and and, and its allies. You look at this, and it's equivalent to what we've seen with sabermetrics in sports. It's like billy ball of of the campaign, the way they played it. It is, very much. And so we all think about the innovations of the Obama campaign in terms of the ground game, and and they were extremely forward-looking in in that sense. But they did what they Uh, called turning dumb TV into smart TV, where they profiled, they started out with a a voter database where they looked at every single voter in the country, and they ranked them on a scale of 1 to 100 in terms of their likelihood to vote for Obama. So if you are 100, you are certain to vote for Obama, and if you are 1, you are never going to go vote for Obama. And they focused in on the 45 to 65 range. So right in the middle, how would they find those people? And that's all they cared about. Uh, you know, that's, that's the equivalent of, you know, just being concerned with getting someone on first base, right? Doesn't right. matter how you get to first base, but we need to get someone there. And that range of voter likelihood took them to these obscure parts of the cable universe. They layered over it with all sorts of psychological profiling, and they really developed drawing on, on, on data from the set-top boxes in, in, in terms of you know, cable viewership to do something very, very different. That has changed the way ads will be bought and campaigns will be run forevermore. But part of that and part of the reason it worked is because it worked hand-in-hand with the get-out-the-vote effort. One without Completely. the other wouldn't have been as effective. Absolutely. So you, you cannot knock on doors and not have a message. You obviously cannot just have an ad that doesn't get people to go vote. And one of the key points where this really worked was in, in digital media. So all of those web videos were really critical. They had, they had literally dozens and dozens of people. It was like a major newsroom, you know, maybe bigger than most newsrooms around the country now, where they had people creating, producing, editing, video just to go online. And, and the point of that video, whatever those stories were, was to be shared. 
they, they weren't interested in getting people to click on videos so they could sell ads. They were interested in having video that people would share because if they shared them, then especially through Facebook, they could follow the path of one possible Obama voter sharing a piece of video to another one. And they were looking for those connections. They wanted this web of connections to grow and grow and grow. What they found was that it was actually harder to convince people to uh, open up their list of Facebook friends to the campaign than it was to get them to give over their credit card details. So people were more willing to give money than they were to give up their list of friends. Um, if they got them and they did get them in remarkable numbers, then it was like the, it was the holy grail. They could actually start mapping out connections between people who were likely voters, who were you know, leaning towards Obama, and that's how they really grew their audience with these kinds of ads, which is basically what, what web video was. It's interesting that these groups, particularly to get out the vote people, but to a certain extent that all of the, these people involved in new media existed almost separate and apart from, somewhat isolated from, the, the push and pull of the campaign that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, they really managed to succeed by isolating themselves. So they really ran themselves independently, and uh, and that was also a surprise. So you think there's going to be a whole unified sort of network. You know, the TV team, the TV ad team, uh, couldn't stand the web video team. They were they wanted to sort of be all under one control, under the TV guy's control, the old media control. The new media people didn't want to have anything to do with them. Uh, the ground game people uh, uh, were, were supremely well organized, as you might expect, and they didn't really need much oversight. So you had some really talented people doing their own thing and doing it successfully. Uh, you know, what could they have done if they were more unified? What could they have done if, if they'd had a campaign manager they all respected? But we don't know. But individually, these groups were were, for the most part, very good. Some parts got great press and really did not succeed at all, including the tech team building their software tools, got great press, but uh, a source of huge frustration inside the campaign. But it didn't crash on election day. So. Didn't crash on election day, but as, as the people in the campaign said, you know, if you're judging us on whether we crashed on election day, that's a pretty low bar. Now, it may have been a bar that the Romney campaign didn't cross themselves, but a lot of these tech projects were a year late. They were badly focused. They weren't really geared up to what the campaign needed. One of the things that the fundraising team wanted, and this was a very successful fundraising team. They could raise $2 million from one email. Fundraising team wanted, like you see on Amazon, a one-click pay button. Uh, all you do is click the button, and all your details were already in. It made it super easy to have repeat purchases, repeat donations. It took them more than a year to get that built. And instead, the tech team, who had no political experience whatsoever, were very much geared for sort of gimmicky apps and games, which they thought were cool, but really didn't raise any money. As you look at this in the rearview mirror now, Richard, and you look at all of this and everything that went on in the campaign, in the context of the problems and the issues of the Obama presidency today, in what ways did, did the issues of this campaign and the things that you write about in the message, in what way has that laid the predicate for some of the problems that the administration is facing in its second term? Well, I do think there's a thread here. It actually goes 
beyond that into the first term where the president has generally popular policies that he struggles to communicate. And, you know, there has been a, a problem in terms of leadership, of who's in control of the message, of chopping and changing around the message. Uh, you know, campaigns seem a lot clearer and easier. If you're in the White House right now, one thing they told me, uh, Obama's senior aides was, well, look, we don't have a hundred, hundreds of millions of dollars to put behind every single message we want to get out. That's true. Campaigns, in a sense, have it easier. They can be more focused and they can back up everything they do with a, these very expensive ads. But it's also true that you've got to have that focus in the first place. You've got to know how you are selling, how you are talking about your own policies. And those require decisions. They require decisions of a, of a well-functioning team. What we're seeing, I think, at the moment is a lot of people who maybe should have been cleared out because they're burnt out. Um, you're seeing a president who isn't really getting clear advice and, and maybe isn't the best source of advice for his own approach. And, you know, if he wants to, for instance, on Syria, communicate that he's being deliberative, that's fine. But that's not a clear message that he's sending to the world about where he wants to take American foreign policy. So I do think that the personalities who really gave them focus in the campaign, people like David Plouffe, they've gone. They've moved on and, and, and it shows. There, there really isn't the kind of discipline that we saw leading into the campaign and, and running through its most successful parts. Richard Wolfe. His book is The Message, The Reselling of President Obama. It's just out from 12. Richard, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.